History demonstrates time and again that neither sex has a monopoly on virtue, and for the right price, members of both will choose opportunism over morality. But in Atwood's binary world, influential men are misogynistic control freaks, while women are either ugly collaborative dupes of the patriarchs or innocent victims. In real life, it is demonstrably far more complicated, which is why the plots of dystopic novels based on ideology rather than observed reality can be just plain silly, with The Handmaid's Tale a perfect case in point. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to our defense. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. My name is Peter, the host of the show. Once again, I am joined by Cameron Cote. Hello, sir. Hey, Peter. Good to be back. Um, And I am excited for this episode, as always. I I don't feel like there's been an episode that I haven't been excited for, but I I am especially excited for this episode, I would say. Nice. Why why is that, Cam? Because I I think we're tackling a, a... a culturally relevant and fairly interesting topic with The Handmaid's Tale written by um, Margaret Atwood. We, I, I felt so weird picking this book up from the secondhand store, Ferris Fair in Calgary. It's the greatest secondhand bookstore that I've ever encountered. Um, but I just felt like a little bit dirty picking it up. I felt like I was walking out with a copy of like Fifty Shades of Grey or The Da Vinci Code or something like that. I, I felt sub- self-conscious um, walking out with this book. I, I read it. Um, it was an interesting read. I I think that it's very misunderstood within the people who dress up as handmaids, as we're going to talk about. Um, but I, I'm interested in this book. I think that it it is a very... Um, important topic for us to discuss on the podcast here. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Thank you, sir, for uh, for reading that book. I, I confess I did not read it, uh, and I'll be the one asking Cam the questions and listening to him as he talks about The Handmaid's Tale. Um, that opening quote, uh, before we get any further, is from Barbara Kay, a columnist with The National Post, and it highlights what she thinks about The Handmaid's Tale. It's a dystopic novel that is not based on reality, but is based very much on ideology. Now, this is coming from a guy. Uh, let me let me put some context here about my story with The Handmaid's Tale. I haven't read the book, haven't watched the movies. Um, the movies or the, the TV show has kind of made the book uh, more popular as of late. But as a pro-life activist, I have seen... I follow things that happen in the pro-life world, and I've seen uh, protesters start to dress up in these these red robes, these white bonnets, like you see with The Handmaid's Tale, and they do that as a form of protest. Now, I have to say, Cam, it has been a welcome surprise to see that. Uh, prior to that, uh, there were times where protesters would come and think that an appropriate form of protest was, uh, you know, going topless. And uh, and and supporting uh, showing your support for abortion that way. I don't know precisely uh, what sort of point was being made, but when people show up to protest completely clothed and very modestly at that, I must say uh, a welcome surprise and something that uh, we as activists most certainly welcome when we are doing pro-life activism. Now, Cam, as we get into the book, um, I don't I don't know if. Uh, if if these pro-life activists, you know, have read the book, if what they're standing for uh, is represented in the book in any way. But I'd love to hear I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about that. Yeah, 100 percent. And so for those who aren't aware, Margaret Atwood, a Canadian author, published this book in 1985. It won a ton of awards at the time, um, which 
as an aside, I find a little bit surprising. I don't know what other novels came out from Canadian authors in that year, but but clearly it was a bit of a dry year um, from my, my my literary experience. I I think it's an interesting book. I don't think that it is the best dystopian book out there. I I have gone through phases of really appreciating dystopian books. Um, I, I think of 1984 by George Orwell. I think of um, oh my goodness, what, what's the one by Aldous Huxley? Um, Brave New World, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, I think, of um, Fahrenheit 451. Lots of good, high-quality dystopian books out there. So so is this one like that? Is this one, so I've read all those books. Is Handmaid's Tale, is it somewhere close? In some ways. And so it, it attempts to replicate the theme of drawing, not necessarily a worldview, but what happens if a corrupted worldview is taken to its natural conclusion. So obviously books have taken consumerism um, and kind of hedonism to its natural conclusion. Books have taken um, communism to its natural conclusion. Um, in this book, Margaret Atwood tries to take corrupted, in some ways, Christian principles to their natural conclusion. She has said in a number of interviews that this isn't actually uh, a take on where she thinks Christianity is going or the aims or goals of Christianity, but rather if somebody attempted to use Christianity as a tool for exerting power or influence over society in a corrupt kind of way, in some ways reminiscent of how some like cult leaders, I'm sure, have leverage or, or tried to take the name Christianity as a, a power um, move over their followers, that kind of thing. She's even likened um, this to um, other religions and other parts of the world and how they have kind of leveraged those religions in a way that, um, to the detriment of society, I suppose. And so right. I, I think that Christian readers should be aware that that you can make dystopian fictions about what happens if people corrupt Christianity and um, the the bad stuff that comes from it. I, I, I'm sure some people have maybe seen the movie Book of Eli. Peter, I don't know if you've seen the Book of Eli. No, I haven't. Um, so it stars Denzel Washington. Again, not, not the greatest movie out there, but I think an interesting take on how some people will realize just how influential Christianity has been for the good throughout society and say, Hey, you know what? I'm a bad person. This is a, um, has been used as an instrument to, um, kind of influence the masses. Maybe I can use it to influence the masses towards my own end, that kind of thing. And so all that to say, I think that, um, listeners can hopefully realize that this isn't necessarily an attack on Christianity, and that their opposition to the book doesn't need to just be this is um, derogatory towards Christians, um, as you see in the book. And as I'll, I'll kind of go through as I share a little bit more about the plot of the book, Christians are persecuted by the the prevailing um, power party at the time who call themselves the uh, the Sons of Jacob. Um, it it talks about how they are um, killing on mass, um, evangelicals and Baptists and Catholics and, and mainstream, um, Christian, um, denomination sort of thing. And so where, where I have difficulty with the book is just in the, the universe that they've created. So to share a little bit about the book. And so it, it's set in the not too distant future in America. And so, um, a lot of the infrastructure, a lot of the technology is very, very similar to what was the reality in 1985, Margaret Atwood's world. Um, characters kind of follow primarily, um, the, the handmaid who often goes by the name of Fred, um, her, her original name, um, was June, um, a couple other characters within the household that she's a part of the commander, the commander's wife, some neighbors, some Marthas, that kind of thing. And basically the plot, spoiler alert, um, the plot goes like this. So in this version of America, fertility has decreased rapidly, whether it's because of environmental pollution or, or other causes. Um, there are way fewer babies being born in America. And basically overnight, this group that calls themselves the Sons of Jacob overthrow the government and completely exert their power to elevate their own leaders, leverage these kind of corrupted biblical ideas and set up this murderous secret service called the eyes of God that establish, establishes a society 
which only has these white men in control. Everyone else, including the other men, um, are subject to whatever laws they put in place. And all women are put in a place of um, servitude, as it were. Um, And anyone, whether you're a fellow, whether you're a woman, um, whether you are from a, a different ethnic background, can be put to death just seemingly at the whims of this um, corrupt society. And so this society, I find it hard to believe that it would develop overnight, that they would strip all rights and all um, privileges from women, strip their bank accounts, strip everything within the span of like a weekend kind of thing. I mean, this is shorter than the age of Ultron. And yet somehow all of America has been um, changed to basically no protest and no opposition whatsoever. So I, I find that a little bit unrealistic. But I digress. Yeah, that's that's helpful, Cam. Um, and it's interesting that you noted that Margaret Atwood is not uh, doing this as a critique of Christianity, but a critique of um, kind of like a warped view of Christianity, as it were. But but as you as you um, okay, so as you're you're thinking about this story, what would be some themes that you think you can pull out? that apply to the pro-life movement, the pro-life activism, the work that we're doing consistently? Mm-hmm. So there's a couple themes that I think go along with it. And and many of them tie around the, the kind of nature of the handmaid. The handmaid is, is somebody, um, young women who have proven their fertility. They've had children in recent years. And this the Sons of Jacob kind of forced them into bearing children for um, kind of as surrogate mothers for the commanders. And the first theme that I think goes along with this is this idea of forced pregnancy. I, I think that a lot of people in contemporary society look at the book and say, oh, look, they're forcing these women to remain pregnant. Um, abortions are a complete anathema in in this society. They are rejected to the point of there. there's a scene in the book in which... Um, one of the people who is publicly hung is an abortionist. Um, abortion itself is absolutely rejected because of the low fertility rate, because of their desperate um, desire to have children. Um, and so the first one that, that really springs to mind is this idea of forced pregnancies. And I think this is a parallel that that they're trying to make it sometimes with the pro-life movement in how the pro-life movement says that once you're pregnant, you have to stay pregnant. They kind of liken this to, oh, th- this is reminiscent of this culture within The Handmaid's Tale, where they're forcing these women to become pregnant, I guess. That said, I think that there's a far cry difference between the pro-life movement, which says once a human life is present, we can't kill that human life. We, we can't end their, their life, um, though we absolutely should punish to the full extent of the law those who have violently made them pregnant sort of thing, right? This idea that um, the commanders in the books who are basically raping these women to um, force them to to carry their children because their wives have been proven to be infertile or they themselves are infertile. um, There's a huge leap from saying, oh, pro-lifers think that you shouldn't be allowed to kill your your child regardless of the circumstances in which that pregnancy has come about to you should be forced to bear children um, against your will with whoever wants to have a child with you. Absolutely not. We absolutely <laughs> believe that um, rape is one of the most heinous crimes. Sexual assault is one of the most heinous crimes in our entire world. We absolutely need to be doing more to prevent it from happening. We need to do more to punish the the guilty perpetrators of that crime. And we need to do more, obviously, for the victims of that atrocity, not only material support if they become pregnant, but psychological, emotional, spiritual support, regardless of whether they become pregnant or not. Yeah, th- this is certainly something that we hear on the streets, Cam, uh, this forced birther thing. I've seen hashtags, you know, you're a forced birther. Uh, Laura Clausen touched on it a little bit when we had her on the podcast but so um so sexual assault aside um and and, uh the circumstance surrounding how the 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 mother became pregnant aside if if we're talking about abortion on the streets or if we're talking about abortion with our families and someone brings this up that um so this woman's pregnant she doesn't want to be pregnant you're basically forcing her to, to be pregnant and you're forcing her to give birth 
Mm-hmm. I'm sure you, I'm sure you've heard this before. Let's uh, let's walk through. Let me just uh, take it take a brief aside. You can go back to the themes in in a moment. But let, let's take a brief aside. How would we respond to someone who brings that objection to us? Where would you start, Cam? I let me start actually where I'm not going to start. Um, sure. we, we've talked yeah, no, for sure. We, we've talked time and again on how we don't want to refute and we don't want to resolve. The temptation is to refute it by saying, no, 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 we're not forcing people to do anything. They've made their own decision. They've consented, all this kind of stuff. Um, people need to be responsible for their actions. Don't go down that route as, at the very least, not yet. Also, don't go down the route of trying to resolve it of, well, we're not trying to force them. We've got all these services available to help them navigate their pregnancies. We have beautiful, incredible sources available. But again, if we go down the route of trying to resolve all of the hardship that they are going to encounter, we might end up with our backs up against the wall. What if we're not very good at resolving their personal specific hardship? Where we want to go is follow the same route that we go for so many other examples, the common ground analogy question. First, we want to identify, yeah, it. we, we agree that it would be really, really frustrating, really terrifying, really emotional to find out that you are pregnant and that that, that is a, a state that you're going to be in for the next nine months. This, this is incredibly overwhelming for everyone, regardless of whether you're in a stable relationship, but even more so for those who are not in stable relationships, especially those who have been victims of sexual assault. We want to find that common ground. We want to identify with where people are at, where they're coming from. The second thing that we want to do is make that analogy. We want to trot out the toddler. Because again, people find it difficult to um, identify with that preborn child. And so imagine a mother of a two-year-old child no longer wanted to care for her two-year-old child. She also, though, didn't want to place that child for adoption and have them go through whatever level of bullying or discrimination they might encounter. Um, I I know tragically that there are many people who have been um, through the foster care system or have been placed for adoption that... um, have been bullied for, oh, didn't your parents love you enough to keep you? I think that's an outrageous statement and and hopefully one that we're able to tackle in an episode in and of itself. But imagine that mother of a two-year-old child no longer wanted to care for her child, and she thought that you were forcing her to care for her child by denying her the right, supposed right, to kill her two-year-old child. Are we forcing her to carry through with parenthood? If not, if it's not inappropriate, I know that's a double negative, if it's appropriate to compel a mother to continue caring for her born child until somebody else can safely um, assume responsibility, even if that takes a matter of days or weeks or even months before somebody can assume responsibility, if we're willing to compel her to care for her born child through that period of time, why not her preborn child? And, and then finally, that, that brings up that, that transitional question from the circumstance to the humanity, because naturally the, the response is, but that's different. What is the difference between killing a born child and killing a preborn child? That gets you on to talking about the humanity and away from talking about the circumstance um, at hand. Yeah, and I just want to highlight, Cam, uh, for everyone listening, we've brought up the, the, the strategy of common, finding common ground, using analogies, asking questions uh, time and time again on the podcast, and we will continue to do that because it is one of the most effective ways to have really good conversations on the streets. Um, it's a way to, to help you navigate your way through the conversation, not talk over one another, um, really you know, have a conversation that's meaningful. And Cam's seen this, I've seen this. Uh, the activists that we work with see this. We see people change their minds so often when they recognize that, you know, there there really is no difference between the preborn and the born. We can focus on the humanity of the preborn child, and then see whether abortion, um, for any circumstances, justified uh, for ending that life of that very real and that very alive human being. So, thank you so much for for doing that, Cam. Mm-hmm. Uh, let let let's continue on a little bit. Um, any other themes? Um, or perhaps stereotypes that uh, you can you can find in The Handmaid's Tale that would apply to us today? Mm-hmm. Two others that, that spring to mind, and, and while I think the first one is probably the most regular, most immediate one, there is also a scene in the book, and it's a theme throughout the book, of women are always to blame. And, and this scene shows um, kind of a, a public 
confession, I guess, similar to what happened in like communist China of this, this potential handmaid. She's basically a handmaid in training admitting to the aunts and um, the other potential handmaids that she had an abortion when she was, I think, 15 because she was gang raped and became pregnant. And the, the kind of pages that follow go through how she's forced to state that it was her own fault for becoming pregnant in the first place. She tempted these men into this, this violent act and that, um, that the abortion was the wrong course of action and that it's her own fault that she was um, sexually assaulted and that um, she's a terrible, horrible, awful human being for having the abortion. And, and this public condemnation of her as a person because of the decisions, both the abortion and whatever her, her ch choice of clothing or attire or conduct that led to the sexual assault. And I think that people maybe looking at this and saying, oh, yeah, that's reminiscent of the pro-life movement. They accuse women of um, bringing sexual assault onto themselves and also link to they say abortion is not appropriate, even in the cases of sexual assault. And so I think that's another area where people might read the book, probably reading it too quickly and probably not understanding the pro-life movement whatsoever, and try to assert that as a, oh, that's what the pro-life movement in Canada and America and around the world actually believes. And so obviously, again, it, it is absolutely not the position of the pro-life movement, first of all, to victim blame the victims of sexual assault. Um, Unfortunately, I have heard many people who have claimed the name um, pro-life to give very kind of derogatory responses to, oh, the girl just needs to keep her legs closed, or it's her own fault because of her dress or because of her behavior. If you've ever said that, if you've ever thought that, if you've ever um, almost thought that, please don't ever again. <laughs> I think this is one of the in things that is so easy to change within society and so necessary to change within society. We cannot be victim blaming people for um, the, the violence that is perpetrated against them, that regardless of somebody's conduct, regardless of somebody's attire, it never justifies or explains away a violent traumatic assault of that person and their bodily autonomy um, and bodily integrity and safety Please don't ever, ever, ever um, do that kind of victim blaming of, of people. And the second step, people might be saying, oh, but, but we do say you shouldn't have an abortion in the, in the case of sexual assault. We do say that even in those circumstances, um, abortion is not appropriate. And I, I absolutely, obviously, 100% stand by that. We had Aura come on um, several episodes ago and we talked about sexual assault. What I would say on that, though, is that our condemnation of actions can never be towards the actor. We say often within Christian circles, we need to um, love the sinner, hate the sin. She has been a victim of a traumatic experience and she needs healing and help because of that. Yes, she did make a bad decision in killing a human to resolve that terrible, terrible traumatic experience. Um, However, it is not my place, Peter, it's not your place, we know that. It, it's nobody's place in society to condemn that woman for what she's done. That's not our position. However, we are still called, we, all, we are still um, compelled to condemn the action of abortion. That yes, she endured a horrific, traumatizing experience that needs to be, um, I don't know if rectified is quite the right word, but needs to be addressed first and foremost, through the absolute punishment of each of those perpetrators. 100%, she needs support, she needs healing. However, killing that human being, killing her, her child, is not going to bring the healing that she thirsts for. It's not going to um, resolve the traumatic experience um, that she encountered. Does that make sense, Peter? It does, yeah. And as you're saying that, I was just thinking about some of the conversations that I've had on the streets before where uh, I'm talking to a to someone whose friend or, or mother or family member or someone else that they know in their social circles has had an abortion or more before. And they really struggle with, um, like, if I hold this pro-life position, does that mean I have to hate my mom uh, or my, my sister or something? And one of the questions that I've often asked is, 
Like, do you think it's possible to still love your mother and be in complete opposition to what she did uh, to that preborn child, uh, perhaps your sibling or your, your, your cousin or whoever it might be uh, that lost their life to abortion? And just asking that, just showing them that, that they are able to hold this position, they are able to outright reject abortion and still love and care and show concern for the person that they love. Uh, who has had an abortion. So that, that's a really, really good question that I've asked in the streets um, that have helped me along in conversations and, and I've had a lot of success with that. So, But that, that kind of dovetails on off of what you were saying, Cam. Um, as, we, as we continue on, um, let's, let's talk about some stereotypes. Do you, should we touch on some stereotypes? Uh, I know you did already. Um, so I guess, are there any more in The Handmaid's Tale or should we tackle a number of other stereotypes that, that we face on the regular? One last one that I, I want to touch in The Handmaid's Tale, and I think that it um, can be a real quick one. Um, I mentioned earlier that there's a scene of the abortion doctor who was killed. Um, and this projection that pro-lifers desperately want to kill everybody who wants to be, who is involved in the abortion industry, whether that's abortion providers or nurses that work at the clinic or receptionists or anybody else. I, I wonder if some of this comes from the fact that there were abortion clinics that were bombed before and abortionists that were shot before. Um, right. I don't think we should shy away from what actually happened, um, but then face it head on and, and share some of our opinions. So yeah, sorry, continue yeah, on. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I read a book earlier um, this year. Again, I'm blanking on the name of it that, that goes through um, a lot of those um, shootings and bombings of clinics and whatnot. And, and this certainly has been something that, um, members of the pro-life movement have um, participated in. And I, I want to take the opportunity right here and now to say that the pro-life guys, CCBR, and everybody that we affiliate with completely and unequivocally rejects and opposes and um, condemns abortion-related violence, any violence directed towards providers of abortions or those involved in the abortion industry. We absolutely condemn all forms of abortion-related violence. Yeah, it's good to note that anyone who even does our projects, even once, um, and that's not just with CCBR, but even with local community groups, sign a waiver uh, that says that they will not participate in any sort of pro-life or anti-abortion violence uh, against those that they disagree with. So, so that by that very, um, by the waiver, by by what we talk about here at CCBR, if if you want to do violence, you are not welcome to do any of our projects. So, yeah, straight up, Cam, uh, just like you said. We, we don't condone any of this violence. Mm-hmm, 100%. And so, and, and I think that should be a very short conversation. Um, and yeah, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> um, all right. so, so let's move into some other things that we hear on the street, kind of ad hominem attacks or stereotypes that people hold about the pro-life movement. What, what have you heard recently, Peter? Oh, man. Okay, so Cam... We uh, we work in the pro-life movement. We fight for pre-born children, uh, as, as you know. Um, now, you have heard, I have heard, we've all heard that you only care about babies before they are born. Because you're not actively working full-time in all of these other areas, uh, because you're not seeking to uh, change the... Um, you know, the, the adoption system and all the other systems that are in place. And because you're only working to stop abortion, you only care about babies before they're born. And once they're born, you could not care less about them. My friend, is that true? So, so no, it's not true that, that anyone that I have really come to know in the pro-life movement, anybody at CCPR, anybody involved with the pro-life guys, um, holds that worldview. However, this is something that, that we are accused of regularly. I um, I was doing one of our Choice Chain events on Saturday here in Calgary with some volunteers, and, and a fellow came up, and he said that exact thing. You're out here, you pro-birthers don't care about the babies after they're born whatsoever. And so before I, I kind of cover, and, and Peter, you and I can kind of tag team this, the, the response we would offer on the street, a little bit of background on that. So first of all, uh, we had Laura Clausen on several weeks ago, sharing about all of the things that we do to support mothers and fathers who um, are pregnant, who have uh, newborn children. Um, I know that the, the local pregnancy care centers here in Calgary um, absolutely have programming and support for years and years after those children are born. So first of all, um, we have a lot of support. However, why, where does this stereotype come from? I, I think that there are four kind of positions that you can hold 
um, and and I'm sure that you can fit somewhere in the middle as I'll talk about regarding the support of children before and after they're born. Right. First good, one that we to have know. to acknowledge is that there are some jerks who claim the name pro-life that legit don't care about the kids after they're born. They they le- legit do not um, care one thought about those kids after they're born. And we absolutely don't want to be those people. <laughs> we We want to be people who do care. How do we care? I feel like there's a second group of people that get mistaken for that first category. And those, that second group of people are those who might characterize themselves as libertarians or, or Republicans or that sort of thing, um, fiscal conservatives who say the government should not be involved in social programming. That is the responsibility. That is the obligation of private enterprise. Therefore, they vote against or they support politicians who don't um, vote in favor of social programming, welfare, um, other social supports that often aid mothers and fathers who are in difficult circumstances. They often get characterized as the jerks in category one. However, what they're actually saying is that instead of the government holding the gun to your head and telling you, you have to give me 50 bucks so I can give it to that person over there, they think that you should just give the 50 bucks directly to that person over there because that way they get the whole 50 bucks and not the $3 that are left over once the government is done with it. Um, Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And one of the claims that's often made is that uh, if you give $50 to the government and if you give $50 to a private entity or a private uh, not-for-profit uh, the use of money is going to be far better. Uh, the money, the money is going to be far better used in the not-for-profit than you know. In mm-hmm. if you go to go through the red tape and the the different systems of government. So uh, that that's one of the the arguments that libertarians uh, very regularly make as well. Yeah, and and so and, and that kind of moves into the third category of people who um, are some. I, I I might characterize them as anti-church or anti-private enterprise who say who who appear to be the most charitable of of the entire population because they think everything should go through the government the government should be involved in all of the social programming and um therefore they're the ones who are supporting candidates who maximize the the welfare system or maximize other social services that are provided the fourth category are, are people who fall somewhere in between 2 and 3 Somewhere between I, I really value private enterprise, my church getting involved, my community association, me, just me and my neighbors or, or my family directly engaging in the, the charitable works of alleviating pain and suffering. I think there are some roles that the government takes that are, are beneficial. It's difficult for me to build a rec center or social housing. Therefore, I think the government should be involved in those, but not other areas. People who fall somewhere in between two and three. And so that all to say, I think that pro-lifers are often built the stereotype of of being either one, of just fitting into number one, just being jerks. And so how do we respond to that on the street? How do we respond to somebody saying, you don't care about preborn children, or about children after they're born? Again, let's not refute it. Let's not say, oh, no, no, look here at my bank book. You can see the donations that I've made towards these organizations, but also not trying to resolve and be like, hey, why don't you let me know what organization you want me to donate to? And I'll do it right here on the spot. Um, How do we find that middle ground? How do we walk through that common ground analogy question on that point? For me, I would say, you know what? You and I agree that we need to be doing more for mothers, fathers, and children not only before they're born, but after they're born. We're on the same page for that, regardless of whether we think, um, whether I think it should be the state and you think it should be private enterprise or vice versa. You and I agree that we need to be doing more for people in hard circumstances. Yeah, that's right. That, so th- that's, that's the common ground you're finding there. And that's, you know, that's before and after birth, um, really getting on the same page with them. 100%. And, and then it's just a matter of imagine somebody was saying that um, we should be, against killing born humans would we ever accuse them of saying oh well um you're you're saying we shouldn't be killing born humans but you haven't personally funded every single um necessity or even desire or whim of the parents therefore you can't say that i can't kill my born child because you haven't met all of my um, needs and desires no no not at all if we're if it's appropriate to say you can't kill born children, even though we haven't generated a perfect society in which there is no 
want, there is no need, um, everyone has the perfect quality of life. If it's okay to say you can't kill born children, even though we haven't resolved all hardship in society, why is it okay to kill preborn children because we haven't resolved all hardship in society? That's the route that I would go, generally speaking. Yeah, that's great. And and once again, um, that very Get, similar structure, common ground analogy and question. And those questions and those analogies really designed to show the people that you're talking to that there's no difference between born children and preborn children. I mean, there are differences in, in age and level of development and size and degree of dependency and environment uh, and all those things. But really, no, no difference um, in their humanity, no difference whether they're alive or not alive. Um, but very much the same. All right. Uh, any any other stereotype? Well, let me let me bring another one up. Um, Cam, you're a dude. I'm a I'm a I'm a dude. Um, we do this in the streets. Do you do you care about women? Because it seems like you don't really care about women. Um, you know, fighting against fighting against women's rights. What should be a, a fundamental reproductive right? Absolutely. We, we hear this in the street all the time, and I actually find it the most, I, I don't know if comical is quite the right word for it, but I, I find it the most interesting when the the huge number of women that are involved with our organization, when they're accused of betraying their gender because they're opposed to abortion. I've, I've heard um, many of my colleagues, um, lovely, lovely women, um, be accused of this, of you've either been brainwashed by your superior male counterparts or you simply abandoned and um, thrown under the bus your your female counterparts by being against abortion. You don't care about women. The again, we it's so tempting to want to refute this, to want to refute, be like, no, I absolutely care about women. Um, this these are all of the women that I care about, and this is all of the ways that I care about them, sort of thing. Um, I, I think it is important to recognize and and take a look at CSBR's. Um, social media, um, a, a huge overwhelming majority of the interns who who partner with us over the summer, many of our volunteers, many of our staff members are incredible females. Um, also, as an aside, please don't try to do the quirky, did you just assume my gender sort of thing? The, the temptation is there to be like, oh, are you saying that I'm a man? Are you assuming my gender? That's a temptation. Please avoid the temptation to do that. I don't think that's going to help for a productive conversation at all as tempting as it is as fun as it might be as fun as it might be please don't go down that route again common ground analogy question no you and i agree that we need to do more to support women that whether these women are pregnant whether they have young children whether they're they're simply victims of a discriminatory environment in which they're living we absolutely need to do more to love and support women and all those who are underprivileged and all those who are being discriminated against common ground we absolutely agree with that. Um, imagine somebody said that I don't care about women because I'm not willing to allow a woman to kill her born child. If I'm not willing to let her kill her born child, does that mean that I don't care about her? Absolutely not. And so if I can tell a woman um, whom I love, whom I care about, that she can't kill a born child and still love her and still care about her, why can't I say the same to the mother of a, a preborn child? What's the difference? Why is it okay to tell parents of born children they can't kill their born children and still be doing that in a loving, caring way, uh, but do that to a preborn child? Yeah, that's that's good. I'm just thinking along the same lines. Um, we often hear, maybe not often hear, we've heard it before. Maybe I'm hearing it less and less uh, that the pro-life movement is full of old white <laughs> men. And and I remember, I remember a phenomenal time at, uh, in Florida with the abortion awareness project. And we always have these, these great pro-life heroes with us. Uh, Frank DeOrio, we have, uh, Bubba Garrett, we have Bill Calvin, uh, Jim Davis, and some of these, some of these heroes who have been in the movement for a very, very long time and who have phenomenal stories to share, about all the things that they've done, they, they, you know, they're hosting us on these university campuses and we come with 20, 30, uh, 35 university young um, people. Now, the Abortion Awareness Project is not just for young people, but that's often who uh, who ends up coming. They can take the time off school and, and so on. And I remember a conversation with someone who who was, was looking at us. He had all these uh, 
justifications for abortion, really didn't like that we were there on his campus. And one of the things he said to me was, you guys are just a whole, like a bunch of old white men. And he pointed at Frank, uh, <laughs> who is it? Who is an old white man? And uh, it was really funny to me because he had to like navigate his finger around seven <laughs> other young people who were about uh, anywhere between 18 and 23 to get to Frank. And uh, I had a good chuckle. And one of the things I just asked him was like, look around here, man. Like we, there, there are a few old guys uh, but look, look who's look who's having the conversations. Look who's out there. Um, a significant amount of young people um, and not just old white men. Although uh, I do have to say, my, my friend, uh, and I think you could say this too, sir. We do love our old white men who have been in the pro-life movement for such a long time. Absolutely. We, we totally appreciate those who have who have lent their wisdom and experience towards the growth of the movement. I think that's one of the beautiful elements of the pro-life movement, that it is truly a cross section of society that we have young people, we have old people, we have men and women, we have people of various ethnic and cultural backgrounds. I think that's a beautiful aspect of the pro-life movement. And I, I applaud anyone who dedicates their time towards the alleviation of time and of pain and suffering. I think it's phenomenal that these people, many of whom have labored for the defense of preborn children for decades, continue to dedicate their time and energy towards the protection of preborn children. What are we going to say? Same thing, broken record for Cam. Um, don't refute it. Don't say, oh, well, look at these pictures of CCBR's interns sort of thing. As much as I would love to share more pictures of CCBR's interns and how valuable that is. Um, and our, our team members, we have, again, incredible females working with us. Um, I, I would love to do a shout out to each and every one of them, but we're already at like the 40 minute mark. Um, and so I, I won't do that, but check on our staff page. We have incredible women working with us. Don't resolve it. Don't say, okay, well, um, fine, I'll put away my sign and only let the women um, have a say in this. Don't try to appease them that way because believe it or not they're just going to attack the women for some attribute about themselves that okay we've gotten rid of all the old white men how do we get rid of all of the old white women and young white women and how do we just get rid of everybody who holds this worldview that's their goal ultimately what i would do again common ground you know what you and i agree that it shouldn't only be one demographic of people who has a say on a particular injustice everyone should have a say on human rights violations. You and I agree that everyone um, should be allowed to have an opinion on a human rights violation. Imagine that um, in, in a particular country, hundreds of thousands of born children were being killed. And for whatever reason, the movement opposed to that injustice was predominantly occupied by old white men. Would we ever say that that isn't an injustice because of who it is that is most vocal in opposing it? Absolutely not. And so if it's okay for old white men to be vocal in opposition to sexual assault or um, racial discrimination or other injustices, if it's okay for old white men to have a say there, not um, undermining the injustice at hand, why is it wrong for them to have a say here? Not only that, but should it matter whether or not I myself am a victim of that injustice or a direct hand in perpetrating that injustice to be able to have a say? We'd never say, you know, if, if you don't want to have a slave, don't have one. Um, you've never known what it's like to live in this particular region of the world that embraces slavery. If you don't know the cultural context, you can't oppose slavery. No, I absolutely can't oppose slavery, regardless of who I am, regardless of where I am, regardless of the environment that I've been raised in. Similarly, um, same goes for, for all other injustices. I, I could keep going on and on, but I'll, I want to get through a, a couple more of these, Peter. I'm sure you do as well. Let's not belabor that point too much further. Ultimately, if old white men are allowed to have a say for other injustices, why not this injustice? However, Let's also agree that everyone should have a say in whether or not we can kill innocent human beings to solve problems. Yeah, that's that's good. That's good, Cam. Could you uh, could you bring up another stereotype that you've heard? Mm -hmm. I, I think one that that comes up very often. I I am regularly asked if we're a religious organization because there's right. the assumption that you have to be religious to be pro-life. There's an assumption that it's um, not only funded by the Catholic Church or by different Christian denominations, but that this is exclusively Christians peddling their biblical beliefs on people 
who simply want no part of their outdated, culturally unfashionable religion. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Biblical beliefs that really have no part in the public square anymore is what many people uh, many people believe. Mm-hmm. And so, again, there's the temptation to refute it and point towards the, the number of organizations that are not explicitly Christian or point towards the fact that, you know what, I in all of my conversation, I haven't actually brought faith or doctrine or dogma into this whatsoever. There's temptation to do that. It might be good to subtly remind them of that. Okay, well, you're the one actually bringing religion into this. I haven't mentioned anything religious. Background. Why are so many Christians involved in the pro-life movement? Is it because the Bible says something novel and exclusive about the humanity of the preborn? No. I think the Bible beautifully dovetails with the scientific information out there. I think the... Um, the incarnation of Christ. I, I think the the visitation to um, Elizabeth and the leaping for joy within the respective mother's wombs um, affirms the fact that human life begins at fertilization. However, this isn't where we're necessarily drawing our biological information from. Why are so many Christians involved in the pro-life movement? It's not because we have different information, but rather because we have a more active compulsion and um, direction towards alleviating pain and suffering, defending those who are being dragged towards the slaughter, um, defending the widow and the orphan, victims of injustice. We are compelled as Christians to be active in the sight of injustice, not to, um, again, it's not that we have new information, it's that we are compelled to act when we assess the information to be indicative of an injustice, if that makes sense. So with that, then, um, how do we respond? That's the background. That's why there's so many Christians involved. How do we respond? We can say, you and I agree that there are a ton of Christians involved in the pro-life movement. Imagine there were a ton of Christians, as there actually are, involved in other movements, right? When you look at foreign aid, foreign aid in third world countries and impoverished um, environments is predominantly provided by people with a Christian background. Would we ever say that it is inherently Christian or exclusively Christian to want to alleviate the suffering of the poor because so many Christians are involved? No. And so why would we ever say that it's exclusively Christian to say you can't kill an innocent human being to solve problems? This is not a worldview that is exclusive to, the, to Christianity, though if you are Christian, you are by necessity, or you need to be pro-life. I uh, There's a whole nother can of worms, Peter, I'm sure that we can get into. Let's not get into it here about Christians, people who claim the name Christianity um, and yet are Christians for abortion or that kind of thing, Catholics for, for free choice, that kind of thing. Yeah, right. Guess what? You're not Christian. You're not Catholic. If you think it's okay to kill innocent human beings made in God's image and likeness um, for even the most severe of reasons. Um, all the arguments that Peter and I have used rely on the biological evidence available to everybody and the philosophical background that human rights must begin when the human's life begins, something that is not exclusively Christian. Cam, one of the ways that I sometimes respond to this is instead of going through common ground analogy question, which is, is really important, I just bypass it and ask them, do you believe in human rights? Do you, do you believe that all humans should get the human right to life? And then go through the human rights argument. Who, who do you think should get human rights? If two humans reproduce, what species is their offspring? Human, absolutely. If something is growing, doesn't that mean that that thing is alive? And uh, tying those things together, we believe in human rights for all human beings. The human being begins uh, at the moment of fertilization. Doesn't it logically follow that abortion is a human rights violation. So once I've asked them the human rights argument, I will, you know, per perhaps ask them some questions about uh, about Christianity or, or um, some of these objections that they brought up, uh, but just show that um, even though they are against the fact that there are so many Christians and Catholics and, and others in the pro-life movement, uh, it is these people who are standing up for the rights of pre-born children. And doesn't that seem like the side of history that they would like to be on as well? Yeah, 100%. And I think that it's important to 
again, draw their attention to the victim of that injustice. Um, as we're out doing our choice change display, showing them that abortion victim and saying, when you look at that and when you understand that that is a human rights violation, shouldn't you be compelled to action regardless of your faith background, regardless of whether you have a faith background? Yeah. So please act. Because until more people get involved, I mean, I mean I, I'll go so far as to say that we won't make abortion unthinkable in Canada until we have non-Christians partnering with Christians. A lot of people talk about once the, the church, quote unquote, church mobilizes, abortion will be thrust from society. I, I think that that will be essential for thrusting abortion from society. But I absolutely, absolutely think that we're going to need the partnership of people from all faith backgrounds and no faith background if we're going to help make abortion unthinkable in Canada. So inviting them to be a part of it. You know what? If you're tired of only having Christians a part of the pro-life movement and you're not a Christian, then get involved. Um, help help us um, diversify our our um, engagement. Yeah. Uh, one more that I have here, we'll, we'll, I'll touch on it very briefly. The idea that people have that we have this, this huge corporate funding, we are basically uh, this secret project of the Republican Party or the Conservative Party of Canada, um, one of my favorites is that we are a branch of Jerry Falwell's church in the United States. I don't even know what church that is, um, but we we are a branch of that. Now, while that would be phenomenal and all of that, um, uh, from what I know about uh, about CCBR's finances, we are funded in in large large part by people who give uh, fifty dollars, twenty dollars a month, um, who give a little bit consistently. That's that's how we continue on. Although we do love. Um, and are very thankful for our big donors. But one of the questions that I ask when we're on the streets um, and I hear something like this, which isn't that often, uh, I, I read this more like in articles online and um, on Twitter and places like that. But one of the questions that I will ask is, uh, is a is a uh, an issue worth fighting only worth fighting if it's not supported by, you know, all these big donors? Um, so instead of, you know, pulling out our financial statements and showing that we're not a, you know, a tax write off for the conservative party in any way, um, or, or whatever it might be just asking, like if the conservative party supports something or if the Republican party supports something, does that mean that inherently that project or that activism or all of the work that, that, that not-for-profit is doing is not good because they're getting a significant amount of financial support. And, and typically the answer is no. And then we can dive right into the human rights argument. Um, we can go right back to, let's talk about who this is. And even if the Conservative Party is supporting this, at least they can see that the Conservative Party is supporting work that is uh, designed specifically to stand up for the rights of preborn children, of young, vulnerable human beings. Exactly. And by way of analogy, would we ever condemn a foreign aid entity that was being supported by a government entity or by... Bill and Melinda Gates or something like that. Unfortunately, I'm sure that if Bill and Melinda Gates were involved, there would probably be abortion tied to it in some way. But like, Lord willing, one day Bill and Melinda Gates will um, realize the error in their way, come to reject abortion, and we will be ready for their checks to start pouring in as soon as they're ready to start donating them. I, I don't think the presence of money in any way illegitimizes the... Um, the aid that is being offered? Would you ever say that you, you can't um, work for um, a foreign aid country because Jeff Bezos is supporting it and, and helping make it happen or, or some other wealthy entity sort of thing? No, the, the fact that people are financially supporting it should often lend towards the fact that this is a legitimate problem in society. And so we don't yet have those massive, massive donors. We're certainly... Um, eager to welcome them in as soon as they're ready. Um, and so if you know anyone or you yourself are a massive, massive um, hedge fund owner or something like that, um, please give us a call because we would love to change a ton of minds and save a ton of lives with your financial partnership. But that's the question we have to ask, not is this being bankrolled by wealthy people, but is this an injustice that deserves a response? If it is, yeah. then regardless of whether you're wealthy or impoverished, whether you are um, backed by governments or or not, shouldn't shouldn't be a factor. Yeah. How about we how about we tackle one more cam, uh, one more stereotype? Is there any specific one that that's still in your mind? You're just burning mm. to share at this moment. 
I I do. Mm, there's a couple, and and maybe we'll do another episode like this one time. I I do think it's it's relevant. A lot of people are tied up in this idea of. Um, we desperately want to send women to prison for having abortions that, you know what, you pro-lifers are just out here. You just want to make this illegal so that you can pack the prisons full of people that disagree with you. I don't know about you, Peter, but I, I have no interest to see more people in prison. That That is not at no. all why I'm out here. This This isn't some like bloodthirsty desire to have our prisons more packed with people. We want to make abortion unthinkable. We don't want people having abortions in the first place. We don't want people having illegal abortions any more than we want them having legal abortions. We don't want people killing human beings to solve their problems. We want to do better. We want to offer better support. We want to offer better answers than that. Um, and so bearing that in mind, I think that we can say, you know what, as society changes, hopefully fewer and fewer people are having abortions in the first place. You and I agree that we need to change public opinion at the very least at the same time as the change in public policy. But often it needs to happen first for people to even desire a change in public policy for it to become illegal. Once the vast majority of people in society recognize that abortion is no less of an injustice than infanticide, Presumably, way less people are going to do it in the first place. And at that point, we can have a discussion regarding whether or not those people who persevere in their commitment to injustice should be treated similarly to those who persevere in other injustices. I don't want the um, prison system to be, to be filled with people who have killed their born children. I don't pass laws to put people in prison for killing their born children because I want prisons to be full, but because I don't want born children to be killed. Um, I think that we obviously still need to be doing education on all the things that are currently illegal in Canada so that crimes happen less and less frequently, but we don't make things legal simply because we don't want people in prison. Thing, uh, the law should reflect to some degree the morality of an action itself, whether or not this is an injustice or not. And so, yeah, that that's kind of my thought on that as well. I, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. No, no, that's good. I was thinking I'll, I will add one more. I've heard this before. Um, people who do this full time have heard this and people who just talk to their their family and friends or or take the bus and talk about abortion. People ask, do you have nothing better to do? Do you have nothing better to talk about? I don't know how you respond to this, Cam, but this is typically how I do it. One of the, the first questions I'll ask is, do you think that if we see and know and, and recognize that a huge injustice is happening in our society uh, against vulnerable people, do you think it's our, our responsibility to talk about that injustice and raise awareness about it, that injustice and try to turn people off from perpetrating that injustice. I have never had anyone who said no to that, uh, but everyone says if there's an injustice, yeah, most certainly. I mean, we need to we need to swing the doors wide open on this injustice as it were. We need to to raise the curtain, let it be known and uh, and have it stop instantly. And then I'll, I'll ask, you know, um, do, do you believe in human rights? Right back to the human rights argument, talk about the humanity of the preborn and then say, if we recognize that 300 preborn children are losing their lives in Canada every day, 3,000 in the United States, uh, millions upon millions upon millions, it's impossible to wrap our minds around that, really, um, uh, of preborn children being decapitated, dismembered, disemboweled, being poisoned um, around the world on very, very regularly do you think if we recognize that that is a massive human rights violation that we ought to do something about it um, and asking those questions, showing them the, the, the humanity of the preborn um, and the, the atrocity of abortion, not just in, a, in specific locations, but really around the world. We, we hope to talk uh, next week with one of our colleagues, Samuel Say, and, and we'll, we'll chat a little bit with him about um, the funding of abortion overseas, how Western countries love to do that. Um, specifically in, in communities like the one he grew up in in Ghana, see what he has to say. Um, but abortion is happening all over the world, and injustice that we really, each and every one of us, whether we do it full-time, whether we don't, um, need to talk about, need to raise awareness about, and need to, to get the people of our uh, around us in our social, social circles, the people in our communities, uh, the people in the cities that we live, aware of, so that they too will turn from 
abortion. So do you have nothing better to do? I mean, ask me that if I'm playing a video game or something, but, <laughs> um, is there, is there another way you respond to that cam or, or, um, would you go a similar route? I I'd go a similar route. I, I draw analogy to, you know, would you ever say to somebody working in a, a food bank that don't you have anything better to do than combat the, the poverty in your, in your area. And some people might respond, well, they're, they're trying to help it. If, if you were working for a pregnancy care center, then, um, then it'd be different. Okay. Well, what about if there was a lot of people living in poverty and they weren't aware of, of the food bank? somebody going out and sharing about the food bank and, and the services that they provide and the, the food they have available and all that kind of stuff, raising awareness about access for that. Well, yeah, people should be allowed to advertise for that. Okay. And, and what about if people didn't even know that there is um, an injustice at hand, kind of, kind of like what you made, maybe, maybe that's where the, the <laughs> food shelter analogy breaks down. But, but this idea of, yeah, if, if you recognize there to be an injustice, not only do we need to work to alleviate that injustice, but we need to make awareness about that injustice too. One thing that I thought about earlier was the fact that um, in many ways, the education has to come first because if abortion doesn't kill children, then we're wasting our time developing all of these various services and, and making so much support available, all that kind of stuff. Abortion doesn't kill children doesn't kill children, then it's the most convenient and quickest way to resolve all of these difficulties. And yet if abortion does kill children, then we absolutely have to provide all of this support. And so the first question should actually be, um, is there an injustice at hand? Before we start throwing money at it or anything like that, obviously for the, those who recognize there to be an injustice at hand, please do throw your money towards educational efforts and pastoral efforts and political efforts, obviously as well. Um, but that, that's the only thing that I would add on to that. Sweet. Yeah, thank you. Well, that, uh, that concludes The Handmaid's Tale and other pro-life stereotypes. But before you go, Cam, there's a, a project that you're working on for early next year that you would like to share about. Um, hit us up. What's going on? What, what are you working on? What's coming down the pipes? Oh, man, I'm so excited about this. Obviously, COVID-19 has thrown so many of our different plans um, out the window. As many people may be familiar, we have, um, we generally do this uh, two-week mission trip down to Florida during um, University Reading Week in the middle of February. We've been going down for the last 10 years, I believe, um, to train a whole new group of passionate pro-lifers and pro-life apologetics, send them out on campus to have mind-changing, life-saving conversations, all that kind of thing. Um, obviously, with the COVID situation right now, with the uncertainty about the border and cases and all that kind of stuff, we're trying to put in a um, something of a replacement, something... Replacement makes it sound negative as like, this is a plan B. This is something that we've been looking forward to for a long, long time. We are doing a mission trip to Vancouver. We are calling it the Vancouver um, Intensive Program, I believe, the VIP program. We are aiming to bring a team. Um, it'll unfortunately have to be a small team because of the limitations on group size and whatnot because of this pandemic. But we're looking to bring a team to Vancouver in the middle of February to get a ton of training um, from people like Peter and I. I. I don't know if we've said exactly who's going to be there doing the training, but um, I certainly have my name in the hat for, for somebody who would like to be there to do training. Um, but go there. You get a bunch of incredible training from um, the CCBR staff. You get a ton of experience doing activism shoulder to shoulder with people like Peter and I. Um, and people who are even better looking than Peter and I, um, believe it or not, um, basically all of our colleagues are better looking than the two of us. Maybe I won't speak for you, Peter, but um, I digress. This is going to be an incredibly exciting opportunity to gain experience, to impact an area that absolutely needs to hear the pro-life message. We have a growing team of staff and volunteers in the Vancouver area, but we want to supplement that through a mission trip. Check it out on our website, the Vancouver Intensive Program. It's under the, what, what tab is it under? Let me pull it up right now. Peter's got it right now. Tell us the, the info on it. No, I, I don't actually have it, but it's not on our website. It's not the, not oh, the good call, website, good call. just to clarify. Yeah, it is on CCBR's website. So endthekilling.ca. It's probably under the Sla take action tab. Yeah. And endthekilling.ca um, yeah. slash VIP. There so. you go. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll put it in the show notes as well. So if you forget, check out the, the show notes. But if you want to learn how to have good and effective and 
mind-changing conversations about abortion. This is a phenomenal opportunity for that. Um, more specifically, I guess, for people in Canada. Uh, if you want to do that in, in other places that you live, do let us know and we'll see if there are opportunities in your area. But if you're in Canada, uh, this is a project that Cam and I are both involved in. Cam, a lot more than I. Um, but do check it out. Endthekilling.ca backslash VIP. Check it out, guys. Um, I'd like to do a shout out as well. Uh, Cam, you were a part, a very significant part of the Pints with Aquinas conference. I was very proud of you for, for all that you did, uh, sir, with you and Matt Frad there. Um, uh, with the Pints with Aquinas conference a little bit ago, two or three weeks ago now. Uh, so shout outs to, to all those listeners who came from the Pints with Aquinas conference. I know we got some subscribers. I know there are people listening uh, who learned about the podcast from the conference so thank you so much for tuning in shout out to you and welcome to all of you uh we didn't mention this at the beginning but for those of you who are new we are the pro-life guys two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of pre-born children in canada and this podcast as you've probably gathered at this point uh in this episode is dedicated to giving you the tools like common ground analogy and question the tools that you need to change minds and save lives from abortion so thank you for tuning in do subscribe do check us out on facebook on instagram on youtube prolifeguys.com is our website and we have a call to action that we've started doing at the end of every every episode a call to have conversations with those around you cam would you like to share about that yeah so peter and i we are having conversations um at least several times a week whether part of our volunteer teams um, that we have in calgary or the interns in ontario for peter um we're trying to have conversations as frequently as we can we want to encourage you to do the exact same this whole podcast like peter said is dedicated towards giving you the tools you need to change minds and save lives and though it can be intimidating and though it feels like there's a ton of pressure on you because what if I do a bad job or what if I forget something that Peter said or something like that, then um, it, it can seem kind of overwhelming. But you know what? We need people to take that courageous first step towards having the conversation. Um, I absolutely believe that if you apply the tools that we've talked about, um, you'll you'll have a productive conversation and even if all you remember are the common ground analogy question and the human rights argument that peter covered i'll say it again right here do you believe all humans should get human rights if something is growing isn't it alive if that living organism has human parents isn't he or she a living human as well and wouldn't that make abortion a human rights violation even if you just remember those four questions you can change minds and you can save lives and so have one conversation, have multiple conversations, join your local activism team. And more um, than that, please let us know how it went. If, if you get back to us and say, hey, you know what, I tried that human rights argument and it didn't work for me at all. What do I do? If you get back to us and say, hey, you know what, I tried to have a conversation with my aunt or with my friend or my, my coworker. Here's how it went. Advice. Peter and I would love nothing more than to um, help you out on that. I just want to note as well that if you are in an area wherever it might be around the world uh, where there are no activism groups, uh, Cam and I, we work for CCBR and we work very closely with groups in the United States. We work closely with groups in Europe. Um, we've helped start a, a whole number of groups uh, in various places. And so if you want to reach out to us and say, I'd love to start a group, I'd, I'd love some training and all of that, do reach out to us and we will get you connected with the right people. And we will make sure that you get the training so that you too can start a group, uh, a small activism group where you are so that you too can defend preborn children with those around you and, and develop a sort of plan and strategy to bring the truth about abortion to the people of your city or country. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are extremely grateful for all the support we have been receiving. Uh, we want to encourage you to check out the Vancouver VIP very intensive, no, Vancouver intensive project uh, that Cam mentioned. Uh, do have that conversation. Listen to the podcast. Be equipped. Get into conversations so that you too can change minds and save lives.